Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. You know, I've been finishing up my uh, book, High Weirdness, lately, and it's been a long time coming. I know people listening to this uh, show who are interested in the book are probably going, God, enough already. Like, let's get this book out there. And I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, one of the things about writing a book is you go through and there's all the stuff you want to talk about that you, you don't get around to. And uh, I was going through some notes on uh, Philip K. Dick's short stories, uh, some of which people don't really talk about very much. You know, there's some really great ones that haven't really made it to uh, kind of the, the, the level of uh, sustained analysis. And one of the stories is called The Trouble with Bubbles. And this is from uh, the 1950s. And it's, as is true of many Dick stories, uh, kind of eerily prophetic in a weird, surrealist kind of way. And uh, what uh, the, the setup for the uh, story is that um, people, to kind of fill, fill their time, um, build these uh, giant snow globes uh, uh, in a game called Worldcraft, which is kind of a weird mixture of uh, World of Warcraft and Minecraft, you know, so it's called Worldcraft. And um, they're basically like uh, sort of... Uh, algorithmic world-building games. Um, they're subatomic worlds. that They begin as subatomic worlds, and then they start to evolve on their own, uh, including involving creatures. Uh, so there's a kind of idea of artificial intelligence. Um, and they're, they're, you know, everyone's trying to guide their, their own worlds to advance towards you know, the, the Pleistocene and to develop um, farther and farther. And so there's a kind of competition uh, for the most evolved world. But the weird thing they do in the, the sort of creepy Phil Dickian twist is that at the, the at the end, when they finally kind of got to the place they want to be, they destroy all of the worlds in this orgiastic Dionysian uh, frenzy. Um, so they're kind of like little demiurges uh, who build the, build these worlds that sound eerily like some kinds of uh, world-building games. Uh, and then they destroy them. And the, the, the story has an ex interesting explanation for why people uh, like the game of, of uh, Worldcraft, which is that it's a substitution that fills in the gap uh, that people feel when they realize or they discover or they assume that there's no other intelligent life in the universe. So it's di directly linked to the impossibility of actually encountering real other intelligences or actual uh, organic worlds or worlds that have life on them. And so these, these bubble worlds are substitutes. And the whole question of why they want to destroy them is a part of the enigma of the tale. And there's some other interesting twists that I'll leave to the side. But I thought of this story because of our, our guest today. Uh, Derek Woods is a, is a professor currently at Dartmouth, uh, and he's someone I met uh, when I was at Rice, uh, one of my, my favorite uh, intellectual interlocutors. Um, Derek works in a, on a, on a, in a very interesting zone between uh, literature and science fiction, uh, post-humanism, uh, ecology and environmentalism, uh, and really looking at it with, through some very intriguing uh, uh, 
angles that are both uh, theoretically sophisticated, but also extremely relevant, uh, really touching in on uh, some of the core myths and motifs um, that we're all facing as we try to navigate the, uh, the Anthropocene and the uh, post-human environment in which uh, in the in questions of environment, questions of nature or post-nature uh, are, are more and more in our face and no longer um, sort of abstract questions best left to uh, scientists. And uh, his, his main project right now, the book he's working on, is called uh, What is Ecotechnology? And we'll perhaps ask him that, that question uh, as well. And uh, we'll be talking about uh, terraforming and as well as uh, terrariums, which are, in a sense, a, uh, a, uh, an earlier version of the world craft bubbles that uh, Dick foresaw. Uh, so uh, with, with no further ado, uh, Derek, thanks for joining us on Expanding Mind. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I love the podcast and uh, it was a generous introduction. Excellent. No, no, I'm really happy to uh, be chatting with you. You know, again, I've mentioned this before, like one of my one of the reasons I keep doing this uh, show year after year, week after week, year after year is because it allows me to keep up with people that otherwise I'm sort of too lazy to uh, just call out of the blue and, and chat. I mean, we've managed to do that, uh, do that some, but it's a it's a wonderful way to, to keep in touch with uh, minds that stimulate me and uh, to share, uh, you know, all these great folks that I've been blessed to know in my life. So, you know, I thought yeah, we'd keep in touch. Yeah, totally. And, uh, I won't be able to forget the Houston years either. What's that? I won't forget the Houston years, that's for sure. No, no. I mean, it was really a, a special time. I mean, I, I, people, people ask me what it was like to kind of go to grad school in, in midlife. I mean, I was in my 40s when, when I went and I I say like it was kind of like I, I got to go to the ideal version of graduate school that I, I would not have been able to pull off if I went to graduate school in my 20s because I was just too anxious and freaked out. And it was also really lucky because we just had a great uh, a, a great intellectual community. We had a lot of fun talking and sharing ideas and staying up late and drinking and smoking. And, and you know, it was just a, a very... Um, uh, rich uh, kind of kind of experience, and and you were definitely part of that. Yeah, no, it's a, I remember it the same way. Yeah. So, well, let's start off with with, with science fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah. And talking about you know the idea of terraforming. Where does where does terraforming start arising as either an idea of you know actual scientists thinking about how we might you know do something on Mars or the Moon, but also uh, I'm assuming that it was probably first glimpse like so many. Uh, scientific ideas inside of science fiction. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about like terraforming as a concept? When does it come up? When did people even start using uh, the term and how is it uh, reflected in science fiction? Sure. So, well, the, the term itself comes uh, after the idea, which is something that happens a lot, I think, in the you know, history of culture and science. Um, the term itself comes in the 1942 story, by Jack Williamson, who is an American science fiction writer, um, called Collision Orbit, and it's not a very—it's uh, not a very interesting story. It doesn't actually have that much to do with terraforming, um, but in it, there's a character who uh, is called a terraformer. He's responsible for making alien planets habitable. But you get that plot and that theme in earlier science fiction too, like. Olaf Stapleton's work, right, The First and Last Man. Um, and 
you know, even in H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds, going right back to 1898, you know, if you consider Martians coming and transforming Earth to make it more habitable for them to be a kind of terraforming or you could call that aerioforming. Um, so you have this idea well before the term that, um, that humans need to go out and make lifeless planets habitable by giving them these artificial biospheres. You know, one thing that's interesting about the, when you think about H.G. Wells, I mean, he was really, really was a remarkable visionary because you could have the whole War of the World story, but just have the, the Martians just be kind of hostile, you know, like they're just coming to like kill us just for the, the heck of it. And it would, you'd still get all the drama. But right. reading the story, it's kind of eerie when you when you sense that they're motivated not just by malice, but really by a kind of environmental need. They have they they're stuck. They want to expand, uh, and or and in order to make Earth someplace that they can live, they just got to get rid of the, the the vermin that are that are there. Yeah. So we 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 already have that sense of the kind of weird problem of terraforming where, you know, on the one hand, it, it makes a lot of sense from a kind of human perspective. Oh, it's a lifeless world or whatever. But there's still a, a strange colonialist arrogance that's going on there. And then in the War of the Worlds, we get to sort of be on the the, the, you know, the brunt of that. We get we're, we're the colonized. Um, so you already have that a, a larger kind of political uh, and an environmental thought in something that could have been a lot more um, just crudely uh, martial. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And like that, that colonialist arrogance um, is a big part. Well, it's, it, it offers one of the interpretations of terraforming, one of the more pessimistic ones that comes into my mind. Um, so, so, you know, if you were trying to explain this as a cultural phenomenon that involves um, dozens or hundreds of science fiction stories, and then later starts to get into nonfiction science writing as well, and real proposals for um, for taking uh, really for uh, living on other planets, you know, from so from early science fiction right up to um, Elon Musk's plans for living on Mars um, and making it habitable. Um, then it, one interpretation of it is that it's kind of a compensation for um, our anxiety that this kind of colonial project um, won't actually go beyond Earth. That like after taking over continents, um, modern Western uh, techno-scientific civilization won't actually go out into space and colonize other worlds um, because they're too far away and they're not habitable and so forth. Um, so one interpretation is that, you know, you, you need a kind of compensatory fantasy, right? And terraforming is one of those fantasies. So as, as scientists start to realize that nearby planets like Mars and Venus won't actually sustain life um, from Earth and don't actually have any life on them at all, um, they, you start to get uh, the, the idea that, well, we can put it there. We can make them habitable um, by kind of booting up a biosphere from scratch. You mentioned uh, Olaf Stapleton, who I know mostly through through Star Maker. Is, is there a particular right. uh, focus on terraforming that he has in, in, in one of the novels, or something in that that I don't recall? Um, it, in the last and first men, um, I can never remember if it's first and last or last and first. Which one comes first and which one comes last? But uh, ironically, but the uh, um, in that one, there's uh, along this kind of uh, multiple. Um, epoch timeline that 
happens in that novel. Uh, one of the things that goes on as humans kind of move out into the solar system is that they terraform Venus. Um, they make Venus habitable. So um, it's not it's not a huge part of that novel, you know. The the, the focus is really on this kind of big uh, deep time arc, um, and it's a the you know the the trope of kind of the future historian looking back on the 20th century and kind of analyzing it and telling people how um, how it looks from such a distant future. That's really that's kind of the focus of it. Yeah, and then I think the probably the most well known sort of terraforming books are the Kim Stanley Robinson Mars trilogy, and that's an interesting one too because yeah. he's so sensitive to politics and you know has a very uh, strong owes a strong debt to um, certain left wing possibilities, and so one of the problems is not only the environmental issues and the science involved in possible terraforming of, of Mars. And he, he pays pretty close attention to science. So it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good model of these possibilities, but he's also very attentive to, um, uh, the politics of the situation. So h- how does what, how does his exploration of terraforming Mars, uh, play into your, your interests in the development of the idea of terraforming? Well, it's definitely one of the biggest ones, you know, it's, um, it, it's one of the most canonical works. So it's sort of unavoidable and everyone who writes about terraforming and there aren't exactly hundreds of us out there, but, um, it's not like studying Shakespeare, but everyone who writes about it has to comment on the Mars trilogy at some point. So it, it tends to come into play, but also, you know, I think one of the reasons why it gets so much attention is that Robinson's like a, a very, like you say, kind of politically nuanced writer um and and because he tends to to theorize terraforming you know not just as this this you know um major technological effort to transform other planets but as something that bends back to influence how we think about earth as well and uh you know going back to the political thing uh, one thing that, that that that's so interesting about it is that he um he sees terraforming not just as a technological project, but as one that creates different worlds depending on the kinds of political ideas people are actualizing. So is it like a Marxist or anarchist or kind of uh, liberal centrist terraforming effort? Depending on which one, you end up with a, with a different kind of planet. Um, and so the long-term process of transforming Mars um, in those novels um, narrates all these different political rifts and the surface of the planet really ends up being a kind of mosaic of different ideologies, which are played out in the, in the ecosystems and played out in the landscape. Speaking of environment, I, I have to note that I, I think I'm hearing the bells there at Dartmouth, and it, it, they, sound, they sound like a strange kind of alien, uh, you know, like sort of the end of, of Close uh, close Encounters or something, where you're, you're hearing this odd alien melody going on. It's no big deal. I'm just uh, noting it because it's entertaining. Um, welcome to New England, yeah. <laughs> you more, know, bell, more bell time than non-bell time. So, so when is it that the idea of terraforming kind of jumps from science fiction and become something that, that people actually start uh, thinking about, like, how would we actually do this? Could it actually be done? Is it, is it, is it the moon? Is it Mars? Uh, and, and, you know, when, when, what, what are the conditions under which the, that idea becomes possible as a real possibility? Well, I think uh, 
Carl Sagan has a piece in the 1970s, which first talks about terraforming in um, real sort of speculative uh, scientific terms. Um, and you know, he, like a lot of other people, was interested in uh, space travel. Um, and these are the years when NASA, um, following the Apollo program in the 60s, is starting to kind of look for new directions. Um, so it's like, oh, we've, we've been to the moon, what's next? And people are starting to take seriously the challenges of living on other planets. But the thing about the, the, the terraforming, you know, of course, has within it this, this term terra is like making it more, mm-hmm. more like Earth. Um, but these days, in a way, and this is something that you, you alerted me to, it's, it's increasingly becoming the, a term, a verb, for looking at the possible possible future of this earth so you get this paradoxical formation of of terraforming earth uh and you know with the ideas of geoengineering and such but it but it from talking to you it, it it seems like there's a quite a wide number of places that you see this idea um appearing uh, or even yeah. with this, even with the, the the language of terraforming, with with all of the ironies implied. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is the thing that I find you know, most fascinating about it right now. Um, you know, it's 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 not um, the idea that humans might really live on Mars. And, you know, I'm kind of skeptical about that. And um, and uh, and you know, sure, if they, if, I guess if someone can do it, then that's great. But it's not going to solve our political and ecological problems on earth. Um, but what it does really interest me is that this fantasy, which starts out as something that you know, projects away from the planet, you know, it's, uh, it goes towards other planets like it did in science fiction and like it did in, um, Carl Sagan's mind as well. Um, ends up, you know, bending back to earth to, uh, as a way to characterize, um, either like the climate change, which is already happening or, um, or the possible, Kind of mega technological Promethean solution to it, which would be, you know, climate engineering or what people are calling geoengineering now. Um, so what you see is like uh, starting really in the 21st century, and kind of in parallel with um, growing like awareness of climate change and anxiety about it, um, you start to see this formulation uh, terraforming Earth take off. Um, and, you know, so it could refer to either of those things. It's like either we've been unintentionally terraforming Earth all along. That's climate change. Um, no part of the biosphere is free of human uh, influence now. Everything is, in some ambiguous sense, artificial. Um, or it refers to a, um, a future state when we really do kind of control the climate, stabilize it, and bring things under control um, and maintain nature in a way that's um, most sort of idyllically suitable for humans. So there's also, you know, it also plays a role in, in this kind of utopian imaginary, um, that is growing in the new environmentalism. Um, some people call it eco-modernism. Yeah. I want to, I want to get to that, but at first I just want to take a moment to appreciate the, the bending back effect, um, which, which seems to be something, you know, again, I, I was, I've just been spending the last couple of years, you know, paying attention to the 70s. And one thing you find in the 70s, both in the popular imaginary and the kind of proto-New Age world and the kind of fringe uh, subcultures, but also inside of 
uh, science and popular science like Carl Sagan's pro- uh, programming and also in science fiction where even if there's a new kind of realism and even cynicism that enters into science fiction, let's say, with the new wave in the 1960s where the heroic tales of, of you know, uh, battleships and the kind of space opera of, of earlier pulp generations are, is, is complicated in some of the colonialist fantasies and and um, you know, sort of expansive fantasies of a classic uh, golden age science fiction are kind of brought into question. At the same mm-hmm. time, going back over this material, I still find over and over again a, a real appreciation and desire for the kind of awesomeness of the cosmos, for the the, the possibility and also just the, the wonder and bizarreness of the great outdoors, you know, the great cosmic outdoors, the, the far beyond. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's kind of trite to, to, to note this. It's something that a lot of people have talked about. But if you look okay. at science fiction, you know, over the last 30, 40 years, you, you, there's a loss of that, um, whether it's seen as kind of naive <laughs> or romantic or whether the problems of Earth become more and more interesting fodder for science fictional uh, speculations, or and this is this is partly what what I think sometimes is it's just that um, you know in a way that that turning within or that turning back is something that's happened even within you know within media within uh, our own sense of uh, you know the devices we use to communicate and understand the world are kind of increasingly insular or self-referential even even more mm-hmm. is, is probably a better word so it seems kind of like almost quaint to like gesture uh towards the great outdoors we're more interested in say the way that you know the images from the hubble telescope are actually con- concocted in the lab we know that there's like artists mm-hmm. working on making them look pretty and weird and we we don't really know we're not reaching out anymore as far towards that kind of cosmic encounter instead there's this sort of anxious almost neurotic sense of being kind of stuck inside a certain kind of technological futurism, but somehow one that loses uh, the des- even the desire to contact uh, the outside. Do you think, do you think that's true in, to, to, to some extent? Yeah, I mean, I, um, that, that's, that's super interesting. Like, um, I was thinking about a bunch of different strands as you were talking there. And I do think it's true, especially in, um, in, you know, at least in Anglo-American culture and Anglo-American science fiction, which is what I know the best, um, sort of the, uh, the Anglophone literature. And like, uh, uh when, you know, it, we talk about this, the fantasy bending back, I mean, that, that's a pattern I see a lot. I like, I like to call it the recursion to earth. Um, so we look at, um, a lot of different, stories you know another novel by kim stanley robinson is a good example um, one that's called aurora right where you have kind of this this striving um humans are going out uh to the to the nearest star hoping to live there in these kind of um closed world like biosphere terrarium spaceships right um, which are able to sustain people for a long time and indefinitely they have their own ecosystems um but eventually uh, you know, kind of spoiler alert, the, the project doesn't work and the humans um, make a mad dash back to Earth. And so it's this return to Earth plot that, that I keep seeing. Um, 
yeah, kind of almost in the aftermath of, of the more ambitious space age science fiction. And like, I, I admit that it sort of interests me and there's a bit of schadenfreude there, um, in a way that, uh, you know, I think like a, a lot of environmentalists, um, experience because this, this idea that, um, technology will really lift us up to kind of a, a star, a star Trek level of, um, cosmic imperialism is, um, um, you know, it's in some sense, it's fun to watch that fail, right? And it's fun to watch the gaze come back to earth as humans realize that really this very unique living planet is the one that, um, should absorb our attention. Yeah, that's great. It's, 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 go ahead. Oh, um, I was just saying, but I, but I, but I see what you mean about losing that sense of the great outdoors. I mean, anytime I read, say like, uh, uh, an article about cosmology, you just get this sense of, of kind of scaling up, which suddenly makes all the things I usually think about seem kind of insignificant. Yeah. When you were talking about the, the schadenfreude, it reminded me of yeah. one of my favorite first lines of, of any novel and certainly of science fiction. It's uh, Michael Bishop's uh, Stations of the Tide, which is a wonderful retelling of, of the, the, uh, the Tempest, the Caliban story. And the first line is... Uh, the bureau, the bureaucrat fell from the sky. <laughs> right. You know, and it's, you really get that sense of, of like what it's like. And in a way, I think that's one of the sort of, I don't want to call it a pleasure, but there's some sort of um, sustenance to be had from accepting the breakdown of our earlier fantasies, particularly expansive world conquering ones, whether they're in space or in mm -hmm. other regions of, of human endeavor, uh, and, and kind of recognizing this sort of fall back into the complexity of the mundane or the complexity of the world as it is. And it's kind of a bummer, but once you sort of see that, once you see that it's necessary or that there's no way out, uh, there, there actually is a kind of, I don't want to say comfort, but there's a sort of, uh, I don't know, I guess it's probably the comfort of realism in a way where you're like, look, let's just, let's just look at what we got here and let's look how, how embedded we are and how much inertia is going on. And yet that there is still room, room to maneuver, that there's still, we still have room to imagine both in a speculative and, and, and a technically feasible way, how things might be improved once we embrace our embeddedness uh, in these systems with all of their, their problems and, and, uh, and, and complexities. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are a lot of interesting stories, too, in the history of science, which, uh, in which that kind of return to Earth um, also defamiliarizes Earth. So, you know, it, the, the uncanny, um, well, the gaze might be kind of turned away from the cosmos, but the uncanny is still there um, because the, the, you kind of come back to Earth with a difference. Um, and like one example is sort of James Lovelock's Gaia theory, right? Um, because he actually started out trying to find out if um, there was life on Mars or not. And when he was working at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, um, in California. And he proposed that, um, by looking at the, um, the, uh, chemical signatures, I guess the spectrum, um, of light reflected by the atmosphere of Mars, they'd be able to determine if there was life there because life would, um, release all these different, uh, well, especially, um, uh, 
oxygen and put the uh, put the atmosphere in a non-equilibrium state. So life would release a bunch of different chemical elements that would be detectable. And based on the chemical sig signature they did find, he predicted that um, there would be no life on Mars. And that was what the, the first rover turned up, negative result. But then, you know, um, he ended up as a result thinking about how life influences the atmosphere on Earth. Uh, and that's kind of where the Gaia theory came from, right? It's basically this idea that um, the atmosphere and the biosphere um, are in, a, and the lithosphere, really the upper um, crust of the Earth, are in a circular co-generating relationship. Um, so really like life is also producing the same environment to which it adapts. Um, and, uh, and a lot of the, what we consider the kind of physical environment of life, the rocks, the air, um, were also its waste products at one point. Um, and so, you know, in, in that sense, um, with this theory, which, you know, has seen a lot of criticism, but it's also informed the kind of earth system science that people use to understand climate change now, you know, in a lot of ways, Gaia theory was secularized and it all started with this strange return to earth. Um, uh, which kind of defamiliarized um, the planet for us. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too because uh, the very ability to recognize how much uh, the totality of you know life in the biosphere, or li you know li life as we know it on the Earth, is already embedded in these complex systems movements between the, the rocks and the atmosphere and, and, you know, bacteria and that it's this immensely complex multidimensional stew that it's still the case that as we understand the, start to understand the complexities of those systems, there's still this, if you will, imperial desire or possibility to, to engineer it or to control it. And that's where we get into these sort of contemporary visions of, geoengineering and you know coming from you know a certain kind of environmentalism maybe which in some sense needs to be interrogated uh but mm -hmm. was definitely where you know what shaped me um as well as a lot of distrust of of you know corporate corporate players of greenwashing of of the sort of uh, ideas of just being able to kind of sustain, you know, make capitalism more sustainable and a lot of suspicion around those stories. You know, I tend to look at ge geoengineering visions as, as kind of, you know, you know, pretty, <laughs> pretty problematic, you know, like, let right. alone, like, both in terms of their motivations and then also in terms of the air, the arrogance that we would be making these some, in some cases, quite a, uh, drastic interventions without really knowing the downstream cost, because that's the story of technology over and over again. We don't recognize all of the attendant effects of these actions. And then those effects end up being, the main thing that we end up having to deal with. So we're just like kicking the right. can farther and down, you know, farther and farther down, down the road. Um, but you spent a lot more, you spent yeah. a lot more time thinking about geoengineering. So I, I, I'd like to hear some more, how, how you see those visions and possibilities, particularly given the, the drastic, uh, potentially very drastic in, in situation we're in. Right. I mean, yeah, I think you're right about um, it, the the problem that an older school environmentalism has with it. Um, it's almost like it, instead of um, instead of trying to fight uh, the tide that is already washing in and transforming 
the Earth system um, so that nothing's untouched by human beings. Instead of trying to prevent that and preserve some areas as wild, um, we completely embrace this um, this this uh, transformation that's going on, and we try to shape it in the direction of something that's good for us. Um, so that doesn't that doesn't uh, sit well with a lot of environmentalists who came out of the uh, preservationist tradition um, or of the, the the kind of more small scale um, uh, libertarian environmentalism that says like you know let's let's get our communes going or let's live off the grid um, and really only embrace uh, uh, small scale techniques of the kind that you know an individual or a small group can operate. So there's kind of this new environmentalism growing, which um, which uh, embraces technologies that could really only be operated and and spread and used by by state and corporate actors. Um, well, it's funny you were, you were mentioning the small scale kind of uh, eco return, and and it makes me think of of. Uh, of Stuart Brand, who's such an interesting, you know, he remains just one of the most interesting figures in so many ways because of the way that he ties together or he mutates from a kind of countercultural context uh, into these other more pro-technology, more libertarian, more pro-capitalist kind of zones. I mean, he was always that way a little bit, and yet at the same time, he he, he very much is um, informed by and informs Again, like what you're talking about, more traditional ways of thinking about the environment or thinking about systems or thinking even about about spirituality. And I guess his, one of his more recent projects involves geoengineering really explicitly. Um, and I mean, I know you're interested in Brand and the whole history of the whole yeah. catalog. Uh, how do you see him kind of playing a, a role as an as a ideologue or, or shaper of this, this new approach to environmentalism? Well, you know, he... Um, published a book in 2009 called Whole Earth Discipline. Um, the subtitle is An Eco-Pragmatist Manifesto. And so people can, people can read um, that to get a sense of just how much his environmentalist ideas have shifted since the early days, um, you know, which for him was kind of the late 60s when he started uh, publishing the Whole Earth Catalog. Um, and that, you know, that was the smaller scale kind of environmentalism we were just talking about. And now he's um, he started to embrace nuclear, um, you know, uh, genetic engineering, uh, geoengineering, um, urbanization, and other things that environmentalists have often disliked and distrusted. Um, so you know, it's it's an interesting test case because how, what what do you do um, with this uh, with this new politics? Um, is there a way that environmentalists can get on board? Um, and kind of uh, almost, um, what would you say, um, ameliorate what might otherwise be some of the worst effects of these technologies? And that's the kind of question that he's interested in asking. You know, he thinks that something like geoengineering is inevitable because climate change is going to start to get bad enough soon, and you know, people are going to get over their denial soon, um, and uh, and realize that we need to take drastic measures uh, to mitigate it. So what he thinks is that you know environmentalists should just um, try to green and try to soften the edges um, of this Promethean project, which is going to happen anyways. And how do you feel about that? You know, I mean, in general, you take you you take a a, a, a a somewhat distanced view that enables mm -hmm. you to kind of understand the 
if you will, the systems effects in these various discourses. You know, you're, you're not going to like, oh, yeah. this is my team and I'm going to like argue for this point right. versus that point. But it does right. seem to me, even though I'm, I'm my heart, my emotional, uh, you know, kind of rom- the romanticism or what, whatever it is, is still very attached to uh, the older, older schools of environmentalism. And again, a great distrust of uh, this kind of um, more welcoming approach to large-scale technological intervention. You know, I also sometimes question those those attachments. And mm-hmm. I'm curious how, how you see uh, environmentalism kind of on, on a broader level changing in relationship mm-hmm. to these discourses. I mean, are, mo- are most of the people who are promoting brands' kinds of views, what we can think about of them as, you know, eco-modernists, um, mm-hmm. do they tend to becoming... Uh, you know, already from the kind of corporate sustainability sector, or or do you see that there are uh, that are that in hardcore environmentalists who maybe have come up with a much more preservationist mindset are are shifting, and that people are really recognizing that hey guys, it is the Anthropocene. It's kind of a bummer, but we're already here. And as Brand once said, you know, it's like we're 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 acting as gods. We might as well you know get good yeah. at it. I mean, we're kind of crappy demiurges is probably better term than God, but it's yeah, yeah. nonetheless the case that, that there's a, there's a real truth there. Um, so how do you see that? Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I, I feel like the, the thing that really gets me when you talk about the emotional side of it too, um, it, like the, the way it affects me, um, it is kind of the, the, um, the technocracy of it, like the corporate sustainability wing. Um, I think is still dominating this this larger scale um, discourse, and there are there are plenty of uh, there, there are some exceptions to that. I mean, there are people who have written really interesting books um, about the Anthropocene um, yeah, from a from a more philosophical and historical perspective, right? Um, uh, like for for example, the shock of the Anthropocene by some French economic historians, um, Bonil and Frisseau, that, that you know that's a that's a great book, and there are a lot of others too. Um, but in general, you know, these are academic books that aren't getting a very um, the, the kind of public perception um, either in mass media or in um, or in sort of high profile environmentalism that they could get. So what you get instead is this technocratic environmentalism, which just says um, we need to finally listen to the scientists. And this is where it gets really um, emotionally confusing because on the one hand, I I believe that um, the right wing is wrong and the climate denialists are wrong in their, in their critique of the sciences. Um, You know, I embrace evolution and ecology as sort of the, the two outer frames, the two limit cases of theory that shape my worldview in a lot of ways. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I, I don't think that um, this effort to say that uh, science has all the answers, the only answers, that science with a capital S um, in the unitary sense that um, someone like Donna Haraway has always been critical of. Um, I, don't, I don't think that version of science um, ever offers a viable politics. Um, and it also doesn't even offer a critique of its inability to offer that viable politics. It's not reflective about that. It imagines that if it can find the right answers, then all we have to do is listen to the technocrats and implement the right solutions. Um, so, you know, kind of going back to, to um, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars, right? It imagines a kind of single um, 
uh, terraformed world. Um, in this case, it's Earth, not Mars, um, which is just done in the right way, which uh, is sort of uh, offering us a stable climate for the future. But it doesn't take into account the way that uh, political ideologies are going to be an inevitable part of any kind of scientific program for the future and the way that they're going to create a, an ideological patchwork that starts to get sewn into the biosphere itself. Um, of course, it already is that way in some sense, but, um, but what people like Brand are talking about, I think without really updating the politics or the philosophy of the thing, what they're talking about is, um, is really intentionally taking control of that patchwork. So then the question is like who who gets to make the choices, who gets to shape the environment um, that all of life lives in in the future, and decide which which species stay and which species can go extinct and make all those kinds of calls. You know, that's the part I find really disturbing because um, in general it's only the scientists who have a seat at the table in these discussions. Yeah, yeah. Then you, I mean you get into that whole question about. Uh who speaks for, you know, those who do not have a, at least an obvious voice and that, you know, on the one hand you you have that, uh, kind of model you, that you find very well articulated, articulated by Bruno Latour, where there's sort of a democracy of, of, of life of others, not just humans, but systems and, you know, uh, biological entities and animals and everything has sort of like a a, does ideally have a seat at the table but then how does that actually what does actually look like i mean do you have people who represent is it a representative situation where human beings take on you know like calling for the for the wildlife corridors that that need to exist in the midst of the you know increasing humanization of 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 space or whatever where they're like standing for the for the animals that that get to use those corridors and that itself is kind of weird because it's often the sort of charismatic uh, animals that have some kind of emotional register for human beings rather than all these myriad of insects and things that people don't really think about or care about uh, in any sort of really uh, emotional way. Um, right. So it feels like we need to have this broader d- democ- democracy, if you want to use that term, but it's so mm-hmm. difficult to imagine what that would look like and even harder to imagine you know, technocrats and scientists with with real institutional power, even beginning to give a shred of their of their table to um, this this kind of unruly uh, calls. Yeah, no, that's true. And you know, there's there's been some pushback recently. Uh, a book I was just reading today um, by Andreas Malm, who's a Swedish uh, uh, historian. You know, he's writing in a more philosophical vein in this book. Book. There's been some some pushback against uh, Latour's ideas about distributed agency recently, in this sense too. Yeah, you know, partly for the reasons you mentioned, because it, it is so difficult um, to to think about how uh, other species might have some kind of voice in politics. You know? um, maybe there could be a parliament in which um, every species somehow has a, a human representative or voice. Um, but we're so far away from that now that for people like Malm it seems like a, a mystification of the real situation, which is that humans have this kind of dominant, um, overwhelming agency in shaping the planet. Um, and so for him, distributed agency just kind of um, uh, is a way of pointing elsewhere and saying, you know, look look at the agency of all the non-humans and look at how um, uh, 
look at, you know, look how post-human we are. We're not human exceptionalists. We're not saying that humans are responsible for everything. Um, we're not the great species that stands above all the others. Um, but for him, you know, it, in some sense, history and capitalism have made us that way. So we need to acknowledge it. Yeah, it's again uh, that kind of the tension of realism in it. It's it's that yeah. split. I, I mean, I feel it like the the the, the Latour model. Right. Uh, for me, it, it 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 doesn't boil down to, but it, it resonates with it with a kind of animism actually, and and you know, in, in an intelligent way, not a supernatural kind of idea necessarily, but something where you're really distributing uh, life in a way of recognizing the the, the just the just the, the wideness and liveliness and intelligence yeah. that's distributed in this in the system but i also see the way that that you know animism even in this more so, whatever sophisticated or reflexive sense is still so far away from the dominant paradigms uh philosophical procedural political etc cetera, etc cetera, that to, to kind of you know plant your flag there is is really to just be op- oppositional you know and it, it or it's it's almost equivalent in a way to saying no any any geoengineering anything that these guys are doing is going to be corrupt and it's going to screw it up and we're just going to it's like Monsanto and on you know steroids it's just a nightmare so no 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 and you're like there's a purity in that and an attraction to it um spiritual right. as well as political but you know, right. at the same time, you're like, ah, is that really like, uh, is that going to help? Is that really going to do it? And I, I find these kinds of tensions between a certain kind of realism and then a certain kind of furious utopian pessimism to be, you know, coming up again and again in, in our situation right now. And, and this seems to be as, as mm-hmm. much a, a reflection of that as, uh, as anything. So that that utopian pessimism being that that idea that that the kind of purity of the no, yeah, the purity that comes with with um, you know staying staying with critique, yeah, and, and just just you know committing to to uh, right. the the animals to, or committing to the to the environment, committing to the to the, yeah. the natural world as it is, and not thinking that like well you know really actually wildlife quarters make a lot of sense, but you gotta you gotta you know, make a lot of negotiations. It's very uh, procedural. It's very bureaucratic in some ways. It has to it grant, you know, a lot of decision power, making powers to forces that seem inimical to the environment and, and energy, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it's a really, uh, yeah, it's a tough place to be. But I realize I'm looking at the clock and we got, you know, don't have so much time left. Uh, and I wanted to just get in a little drop on the terrarium since I, I gave you that Worldcraft story at the beginning. Um, and and you it, we talked before about what makes the terrarium interesting is that it, it kind of provides one model for how terraforming might work, but it's not necessarily the best model. So... Yeah. Talk a little bit about how the terrarium plays into your terraforming interests. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've, uh, I keep working with this distinction between the terrarium and terraforming and some people, some people uh, bring the two together. So so terraforming means um, artificial closed ecosystems like biosphere two as well, or like the world that everyone lives inside of in uh, Logan's run that counts as terraforming in a sense. Um, but I like, I like to make this distinction uh, between the two because, you know, first you have the two nice words, they both have Terra in them and there's some, some, uh, rhythm to that. Um, but also because of the geometry 
of the two things. You know, the terrarium is this enclosed world, an ecosystem on uh, on the inside of something that's say either a dome or a sphere, um, and it's not very big and it's fairly small scale. Even Biosphere Two, which is huge, could only sustain eight people during their closure experiment. Um, but but the uh, terraforming, on the other hand, is about exposure. You know, it happens not on the inside of a sphere, but um, on the outside of it. You know, the terrarium is an artificial ecosystem enclosed by a sphere, and terraforming is all about trying to um, seed an ecosystem around the outside um, of a much larger one. So you have these two opposite geometries: enclosure on the one hand and exposure on the other. Um, and I think that. That fact and the scale difference between the two um, it has a big impact on um, in well, definitely in science fiction formally, um, and then also in the way that science fiction is seeping out into um, other scientific discourses and into environmentalism now, and inflecting um, ecological thought in a much more general sense. So, uh, do you see? I guess I want to tie this all this stuff up a little bit to the idea of uh, of eco technology. Is it, it yeah. when you say it, when you ask what is eco technology? It's partly because we don't really know yet. It's not. I mean, geoengineering is maybe an example of it, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's, I sense it's not the only example, and that part of what you're trying to do is is to show that there are ways that techne and ecology or environmentalism can go together that aren't aren't necessarily just another iteration of technocratic corporate greening right yeah and that aren't necessarily about this top-down control where a sort of uh, um, committee of of technocratic rulers somewhere decides um, how to set the thermostat of the earth you know this kind of um, this kind of very uh, very ominous version of what geoengineering might look like and you have some more interesting fantasies um, less top-down um, in texts like Robinson's work, um, also in the work of um, a science fiction writer who's just gotten big recently, and N.K. Jemison's work. Um, and in this kind of material, um, the Earth kind of has a bigger role. It tends to kind of push back. Uh, so, for example, um, in, in Robinson's work, and well, here it's not the Earth, but Mars, right? In Robinson's work, um, terraforming Mars doesn't mean that you can just see the same kind of ecosystems we have um, on Earth there. Instead, Mars kind of um, pushes back, and its geology ends up uh, shaping the kinds of um, life forms that, um, that that people put in place. So, in this in this sense, there's um, uh, terraforming is not so much about control, but about setting a self-organizing process in motion and then seeing where it goes. Um, so that's kind of what one example you know, to answer your question. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of other of examples where we see that kind of kind of logic played out where there, there is some element of, of, of control or some kind of structure or, or system or, or procedure that's set in motion. But there's room for okay. What's going to come back? You know, what what? How right. is the how is the the non-human material going to respond to this rather than just trying to legislate it? Uh, you know, from the yeah. get-go. Well, another kind of another example is in AI research where you know people try to 
um, instead of kind of giving giving a robot a humanoid robot a mind um, in a relatively Cartesian way, some AI researchers have tried to create these swarms of of small simple robots right, that all interact and then self organize into a, a system that can learn. Um, a system that can actually adapt and do things it wasn't programmed to do. So there's still that sense there that you know you you do create something, you do set something in motion, um, uh, but it's a strange form of technology that then evolves to do things um, uh, to have functions that you don't imagine in the first place. Yeah, are 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 sort of scientists more open to that side of self organization? I mean, it seems like overall we've become to recognize more and more how those sorts of things are operating i mean even if even in our own gut biome you can you can that helps helps you understand you know why is it the case that all this bacteria inside me is actually has so much to do with who i am my moods my emotions my food the way that i extract energy it's like i'm completely symbiotically bound to this whole immense you know multiple colonies uh, within, like that mm-hmm. sort of, you know, in order to to think that way, you kind of have to allow something like emergence or self-organizing behavior to be part of your worldview. And I know that, like, for people have been talking about this stuff for decades inside systems theory, or right. neo-cybernetics, or, you know, right. Ilya Prigogine even crossed it over into the new age. Uh, but those were, you know, that in some ways, those are ideas that were floated decades ago. Is it more the case that people working on system sciences today, in terms of climate or other other kinds of systems, that there's more and more an appreciation of self-organizing behavior? Or is there still this kind of tension between a kind of more top-down, driven, control-oriented uh, approach to a sort of fringier respect for how systems behave in the wild, so to speak. I think there's still a, there's still a big tension. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a, well, it's, it's, it's hard to answer that question. Um, but there is a tension in the sense that, um, it's hard to say, write a grant proposal, um, that says I'm going to, um, show, I'm going to build a technology that exceeds my control. I think that's one of the, one of the big uh, problems with that whole idea, and one of the things that makes it hard um, for scientists and engineers uh, uh, to get on board. Um, but it, maybe it is um, important. Maybe it is something that needs to be followed up, and not followed up in the mode of um, something you could call like upwards reductionism, right? Where it's like, um, yes, we are interested in in complex systems now, but um, we want to understand their complexity in such a way that we can control them <laughs> once again, um, and that we can, uh, but you know, inc- control them by sort of working our way from the small parts up to the complex system, instead of reducing the complex system to the small parts again. Um, and you know, I think I think there's some there's some sense that uh, maybe in in like systems biology and bioengineering, um, that kind of upwards reductionism is is dominant. Um, you know, I, I can't say for sure. Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of, it's still, it's, still I, I, like, it's ironic I, because, uh, you know, it comes back to, again, that, that what I alluded to earlier, where it's just like, if there's like a dominant mm-hmm. fact of the history of technology, it's that there are unintended consequences and they're yeah. sometimes drastic. So e- in any situation where you could say, look, we really had control, like 
people knew how to make a firearm. You know, it's like they knew what they were doing. They knew the physical principles. There was no emergent behavior. It was making a firearm, you know, and then you're like, okay, well, what, what happened? Well, you know, there's a lot of unintended consequences and, you know, can multiply that example, you know, yeah. a million fold. So the, the actual fact from a kind of big historical, even natural historical perspective is this out of controlness uh, mm-hmm. inside technology. And yet it's somehow imp- almost impossible to kind of weave that in to the continuing operations of, of, of science. Yeah, well, you know, I think that's where we do need um, to not just have science, but, but a lot of kind of philosophical reflection on um, the imbrication of consciousness and technology um, it, it, in the kind of way that, that you and lots of other people um, have argued. Right? Those two things always go together. And you don't just have technologies that you um, decide to set in motion and they always work the way we think. Like you say, unintended con- consequences um, tend to come up in every case. But I think also, you know, um, they come up in different ways uh, depending on the scale. And uh, so when we're talking about something like geoengineering and or this idea of terraforming Earth, um, it has to be some acknowledgement as we kind of go into a political process of deciding um, whether to do it or not, that um, technology is um, different depending on, say, whether I'm, I'm trying to intentionally use the glass to drink water, and I can simply realize that intention with no major um, unintended side effects, assuming I don't spill it on myself, um, and kind of uh, setting something in motion which um, you know, starts out with an intention, but then has side effects, but not just side effects in the sense of side effects that stay in place, um, like uh, like this, the water stays on my shirt when I spill it on myself, but also side effects that spread out through the earth system, spread out through um, all the, the through the kind of patchwork of ecosystems that make it up, um, and self-organize because those ecosystems have their own dynamics right, right. into something else. And that something else is is a technology still, but in what sense? Yeah. Well, on that of, that uh, question, I'm afraid we're going to have to end it because uh, right. you know we, okay. there's never enough time. And um, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll bring you. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll bring bring you back to talk more. I'm I'm getting more and more pressure to to extend this somehow. But I have an hour slot on PRN, so I'll just have to say thanks for uh, joining us on Expanding Mind, Derek. Thanks so much, Eric. Okay, great. Till next week, folks. Uh, keep your minds open. I'll be gone next week, but uh, I'll I'll be cooking uh, cooking with gas when I return. All right. See y'all. <laughs>